You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So, we are continuing to work our way through the book of Revelation. We are into the second chapter. I think we'll finish the second chapter today. So, we're still in the letters to the seven churches. And as we've mentioned many times, it is crucial that we are studying the book of Revelation at a time like this. Uh, Do you remember last week we looked at the letter to Pergamum? And we spoke about where Satan's throne dwells, is how Jesus described that particular city. And we spoke about the ancient altar to Zeus that used to be in Pergamum, that now resides in the Pergamum Museum over in Berlin, and that was used as the model for Hitler's Nuremberg platform and stadium. That was where Satan's throne dwells. Now we are moving on to another church called the Church at Thyatira. So you can see this church is a little bit more inland from the rest. However, I want to just have a small digression before we begin looking at this church to remind us of something, because we're going to see some very stern correction from Jesus to his church here at this time, and I want us to have in our minds a couple of facts before we get into this. Let me just pray quickly. Heavenly Father, we'd ask now that as I turn, uh, turn towards the word of God, that you would just open this up to the people, Lord, that you'll give us hearts and minds to see and understand what your Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So, the thing I want us to have in our mind as we get into this letter is quite simply that Jesus loves his bride. If you are familiar with the Bible or if you're not familiar with the Bible, you may be aware that the imagery of a bride and a bridegroom is how Jesus Christ often refers to his relationship with the church. He is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, obviously in this symbolic sense. And many people would argue that the entire Bible is actually viewed, particularly in the Jewish tradition, as a marriage contract, as a covenant book. That's why it's called the covenants that we refer to so often. But the chief one being, it is a marriage contract. At the end of this book that we're studying, Revelation, we will see what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the feast that is celebrated after everything has been done and dusted, so to speak, and we are entering into the time of the kingdom. That's the marriage supper. However, right now, to us here and for that church that we're reading about in Thyatira here, we are in a period of waiting. We are waiting for the bridegroom to come. In the tradition of ancient Jewish weddings, what would usually happen is the betrothal, or we would say the engagement would happen, and then there could be a a long period of time before the actual wedding. The idea was that the husband, the, the bridegroom, would go away, he would prepare a house, he would get supplies, and he would make sure everything is happy for his bride. And you see this imagery being used throughout of what Jesus is doing. He goes away to prepare a place, and one day he'll come back to receive us unto himself. That's what's going on here. That is the imagery that we see throughout the Bible. So we are in this period of waiting, waiting for the bridegroom to return. This imagery is all throughout the Bible, and the Bible records for us the marriage covenant that we have. And we know that that covenant, how was it signed? That covenant was signed with the blood of Jesus Christ. It was the death of Christ that sealed what we call the new covenant. So we could say that the love that Christ has for his bride, for his redeemed people, was so much that he gave his own life for her. And this is thus provided the ultimate model of sacrificial love that really any parent or anyone who's had that love relationship with family or friends can appreciate to this day. You give your life for the ones that you love. 
That is the ultimate model of sacrifice that was laid down by Jesus. We find that theme even in popular culture all throughout movies, don't we, in themes and love songs and all these things. The ultimate sacrifice of laying down your life for the one you love, that was Jesus who set that model. And also, as an aside, I would just add, Jesus' love was so great for all of humanity that he laid down his life even for those who did not love him. In fact, he laid down his life even for those who still hated him and to this day still hate him. He still laid his life down for them. Therefore, the period of history that we're studying in the book of Revelation, when he comes in righteous judgment, he is the only one that has the right to judge like that. Not us, not anyone else, not a government body, not a religious institution, just Jesus. He's the only one. No one did what he did. No one else has that authority. He will judge in truth and righteousness. This is the image I want us to have in our heads as we go into this. But let me add, the bridegroom, the love that he has for his church, for his bride, is also what we would call a sanctifying love. It is a love that is concerned with the well-being of the bride. He wants to keep away anything that may cause the bride to stumble, anything that may deceive the bride, may lead her into a dangerous situation, may hurt her, harm her, or damage her. This is a sanctifying love. It was the bridegroom's place to make sure that those things do not come to the bride. We find this in the book of Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. It's, it's um, given as the model, this exacting love is given as the model for husbands and wives. It says, husbands love your wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. That's the model there. Now, if you're, if you're unmarried in the church here, or if you're single, you may, it's easy to read a verse like that and just immediately dismiss it and be like, well, that's an instruction for married people. I'd beg you to reconsider that attitude. That is, you're going to miss the point if you do that. Now, you may not have the earthly type, but that earthly type is pointing to a greater reality, and you do have that greater reality, the substance of that earthly type, and that is Jesus Christ himself. As a member of the church, you are part of the bride of Christ. And when I say a member of the church, I hope you understand me. I'm not talking about people who are members in the earthly sense that they've signed a contract and pay their fees to the church. I'm talking about people who are born again by the Spirit of God and have trusted in Christ for salvation. They are the only members of the church. Other people can come to church, but they're not members of the church. Of course, Christ bids everyone to become a true member of the church. That's who we're referring to here, but that's what I mean. So I'd urge us just to have that picture in our head. Now, we may know couples who model that love relationship very well. We probably all know people who don't model it very well at all. The question is, whether you're married or single, how are you modeling it as a, as a, part, as a member of the body of Christ? Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, who had a lot of problems, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from simplicity and purity of de devotion to Christ. So he has a godly jealousy for his church, and we can understand this. This is the same concept. You know, God, there's a type of jealousy that is not sinful. Often it is when man's doing it, but this, there is this type of jealousy that it's referring to is it's a jealousy born out of love and compassion and a concern that nothing come in the way and harm your wife, your bride. That is what it's referring to here. Jesus Christ has this for his church. Paul here is an ambassador of Jesus Christ and a, an apostle. He shares that jealousy at this sense. He wants the church to be protected. Now, of course, this is in a spiritual sense. 
it's referring to things that would lead the church astray. It says, take us away from the simplicity and devotion of Christ. That's what we're getting at here. So the picture we have is a loving bridegroom who is engaged, betrothed, who has given up everything up to and including his own life for his bride, and now he has gone away to prepare a place for his bride, and he is concerned about those who would try and lead his bride astray to trip her up, seduce her, deceive her, and ultimately destroy her. We understand this. Even in human terms, you can understand if you were engaged and then you'd gone away to sort everything else out for your upcoming life, and you saw someone coming in your name, pretending to be your friend, trying to tell your bride, your, your fiancé rather, that she needs to do this, something that would harm her, something that would damage her, something that would ultimately destroy your relationship with her. You would have that same sort of godly jealousy, that concern for the welfare of your bride. That's ultimately the picture we have here in the book of Revelation. We, we can kind of understand that. Now, that's what I want us to have in our minds now as we go through. So that's the bride of Christ. Now, we look at the letter to Thyatira. Let's turn there. It's Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is Thyatira. Now actually we've seen Ephesus, Smyrna and Pergamon and they've been very important cities, religious centres, cultural centres, Thyatira is a bit of a blip in history, really. There's not huge amounts of interesting stuff about it. It's a bit of a nothing city, to be frank. Today, there's a, there's a couple of ruins that you can see, but the bulk of the city has been built over by a modern Turkish city, so there's not really much there to discover. But this is Thyatira. There are a few things we know about Thyatira. You may remember, we just studied it before Revelation, the book of Philippians, the founding of the church was when Paul landed in Philippi and he went to a, a women's prayer meeting that he found by a river and there was a woman there named Lydia. It says in Acts 16 verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. So we, we get a little insight into the trade that was happening there, a worshipper of God. And that's how the, the actual, how the church in Europe actually started, through that one lady. Now, so we learned that Thyatira was a, it had, had some trade going through it. It was the fabric trade, in particular purple. In this time, purple was reserved for Roman governors and royalty. It was very expensive, made from crushed shellfish. It was hard to get hold of. You wouldn't get anyone 
just wearing purple. In fact, it was actually illegal for anyone who wasn't a dignitary in the Roman Empire to wear purple. Now, they were also, Thyatira was well known for its trade guilds. There were guilds of bakers and potters, workers in brass, tanners, leather cutters, wool and flax, loads of different trades. That's pretty much all it was known for. And when we say trade guilds in the Roman world, every trade guild would have a patron deity. They would choose a patron deity usually, and they would have their yearly meetings to gain membership into this, these different guilds where you can succeed in business and all these sorts of things. But you would usually have to pay homage to the patron deity, and then there'd be a time of feasting and festivities and all the different things that we've looked at that I won't go into again that the Roman world often did in celebrating these sorts of things. So that is Thyatira. Let's look at that first verse again now. The angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So we see here the description of Jesus given to us from that first chapter in Revelation, but it gives us a clue here by these two descriptions, eyes of fire, feet of bronze, that this letter is going to be pretty serious. Like fire and bronze both speak of purity and they speak of judgment, and he has some serious things to say now to the church. It's a warning to the bride. The Son of God. So this is a title of Jesus Christ, and it's a title that actually emphasizes his deity. That, that means that he, Jesus Christ is divine. He is God. It is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, which will also come up later in this letter again. I'm going to read to you the relevant portion. It's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 to 9. So this is an Old Testament passage that speaks about the coming King Messiah who will rule and reign on this earth. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. If you may remember, that's the promise that he wrote to this church. That's from Psalm chapter 2. This is the king when he comes to take over his kingdom and all who stand against him will disappear. It's a strong title, it's a powerful title, and it's particularly, it's asserting his authority here. It says he has eyes like a flame of fire. You see, this church was allowing Jezebel, we'll speak about that in a moment, to promote an unbiblical teaching in the church and lead the church astray. Now remember my introduction, why, why I spent so long on that introduction. It's something that will lead his bride to ruin, and he is very concerned about that. He loves his bride. So this is why he's giving these warnings and this is why he uses such strong language here. His feet are like bronze. Bronze speaks of judgment. This was Thyatira. They had bronze guilds in the city. People would have probably seen and the furnace is working and you, it, you, know, you heat up the metal and you get rid of all the impurities in it until it's pure. This is what this is really referring to here. It speaks of the judgment that the Lord does in our own lives as he sanctifies us, makes us more like himself and also speaks of the future coming when one day he will do this globally. His righteous feet will come and expose all these impurities that are in the world, but in this particular context are being allowed to shelter under the banner of the church. He says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The acts of love, charity and service of this church were worthy of commendation. And we have a very popular attitude today, or I see it in an increasingly secular culture, that is to blame religion for all the ills of the world. You may have seen some sort of sceptical argument in one shape or another saying that the world would be better if we just got rid of all religion. Unfortunately, that is impossible. We will, hopefully, by the end of Revelation, you'll see why. You remember, remember this famous song, 
I'm sure everyone has known or heard this song. Let me read you a few of the lyrics. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. That was John Lennon. Now this is a, was a very typical view around that time, probably because you're, you know, it's quite common to sit around and hotbox with different your car probably at that time and everyone was stoned and doing what they were doing in the 60s. But the idea, what he's actually sort of expressing here, is very similar to what we're going to read about in the end of the book of Revelation, where there is a time where there's no, there's no more false religions, there is only the true king, there are, there's no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. Everyone is living in peace, but that peace has to come through Jesus Christ. What he is basically saying is we don't want the actual king, we want to do it on our own, but he's making one very serious mistake there, the nature of man. Unfortunately, there's not a single era and a single day in human history where the nature of man, the sinful, fallen nature of man, has not corrupted that vision that he has there. It is just a kingdom without Christ, and this has always been what man has strived, uh, striven for, right since back the, to the power of Babel. It's trying to find a kingdom without Christ. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Most people have this aversion to religion. We see it in our, in our context. Christianity would be the, the religion it's mainly focused at. You try and push Christianity out of public life. Politicians and at your work, at your school, you don't want to necessarily speak about your faith in some ways. You're worried about the repercussions in our day and age. So we have this idea that it should just be a private matter. Faith is a private matter, but don't go bringing it into the public square. That's just the, the way that our culture seems to have progressed. Many atheists will take a stronger tone, and they'll have statements like there's a very common argument, look at all the wars that religion has caused. And therefore, if we could just get rid of religion, back to the John Lennon image, everything would be absolutely fine. I see that one all the time coming up. Now, of course, the problem is it's just factually, on a very straightforward basis, it's factually just completely wrong. There's a three-volume academic work called the Encyclopedia of Wars, surveyed over 1,700 wars over a period of a few thousand years, and their causes. Only 7% of those wars are actually directly due to religion, and even that you can't really directly put it down to one particular factor because there's often multiple factors involved. And usually it's politics and government. Quite often it's resources. Man has been fighting over resources since time immemorial. When you strip it all back, though, when you see with the eyes through the Bible, you're left with one predominant factor. War is always caused by people. And it is the sinful nature, again, of mankind that has to be factored into that. And that means that no education, no technology, no politics, no government or religion can ever deal with that issue. There is only one thing that can get you to a stage where, you, where that is dealt with, and that is having to deal with the sinful human heart. Jesus Christ says that he will make you a new creation and he will give you a new heart. That is ultimately the cure. And then one day, he will come and remove all the temptations that we're going to see in the book of Revelation and mankind will turn all their weapons of war into weapons of agriculture, weapons of human flourishing. That is what we're reading about in the book of Revelation when Christ comes. There will be no more war. It says their swords will be turned into plowshares is the expression. You may have heard that expression. They actually have that written on the side of United Nations building. They've taken the quote out of context from the Bible and again they're trying to show that the United Nations can stand in the place and do what Christ the King promised only he could do. You see, it's again, it's back to the John Lennon thing. It's just mankind is constantly trying to do that because they refuse to listen to the Lord and accept his revelation of what he has said. When people's hearts are changed, 
by the word of God, you get given a new heart. This is the promise of Christianity. And in fact, the presence of true Christianity, remember, I'm not talking about people who call themselves Christians, as many have done over the years, empires, governments, rulers. I'm talking about people who know Jesus Christ personally and are saved by him and are transformed and have given their lives for him. That sort of true Christianity on this earth has always been a force for good, more than anything else combined, I would say. Whenever the message of Jesus has gone out, it causes upward social change in the direction of greater morality and sanctity of life. And it does not do this by social revolution initially not by protesting and all these different things like the world's methods. It does this by personal transformation, which in turn will lead to social transformation. You see, when people's hearts are changed, their faith is placed in the gospel proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven in some way is brought into this dark, dark world. And that is why we see as we go through history, everything from hospitals, education establishments, have all come from Christianity. The Bible's influence on law, influence as it met these Roman cultures, as it outlawed the gladiatorial wars, the blood sports, as it outlawed the temple prostitution, right up until the 19th century as missionaries were going to places like Ecuador and the Aztecs and they were stopping, when the gospel entered those lands, they stopped human sacrifice, they stopped foot binding, they stopped the cannibalism and all these different things. And that was only a couple of hundred years ago. It's really not that far uh, in ancient history. This is what it does. You may look at an ambulance today, you'll see St. John's ambulance written on the side. You'll look at the Red Cross, you'll see, oh, it's a Red Cross. All of these things, the main nursing hospital in London, St. Thomas Hospitals, you can see the roots of these things go back to Christianity. Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Princeton, all of these were Christian institutions started for the purpose of expressing and teaching Christianity. Even the fact that we send all of our kids to school was actually a, a, a result of the Protestant Reformation. Education for all. Kids should be able to read and write so that they can read the Bible. That was something that you still don't get in many places in the world, but it was something that came from Christianity. Whether it's art, music, education, government, morality, law, charity, healthcare, social reform, sanctity of life, the Bible of Christianity, the message of the gospel, has been a shaping influence more than anything else in this world. It permeates every layer of our society, and it still does even in a day where most people reject it today. They just don't realise that it does. So the church in Thyatira was doing many good things in that city that Christ commended them for. Their works of charity, love, were commendable. But, let's look at the next verse. I have this against you. It's that big, you know, he says, nevertheless, it might say in your translations, but there's something I want to talk about. He says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So although there was a faithful remnant in this church, something was wrong. Something was going on here that Christ wanted to shine a light on. He says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So this was obviously a self-proclaimed prophetess in the church. It's unlikely that her name was actually Jezebel. I'll just make that clear. The Jezebel in the Bible I'll explain in a moment. It's a name, no one names their child Jezebel. It's, it's a name that has a stigma and a message attached to it, a little like if I said you were Judas today. It means you're a betrayer. If I said you're a Hitler today, it means you're like the pinnacle of evil. You know, so that has that connotation. To be a Jezebel has the same meaning from the, from the Bible and in the ancient world. So we'll look at this. Jezebel, if you remember the story, she was the daughter of a pagan king. And she was married to a man called King Ahab. He was one of the kings of Israel. And she seduced King Ahab. 
into the idolatry of her pagan gods to the worship of a god that was called Baal. We spoke about Baal last week, uh, a very popular god from Babylon. She hated the worship of the God of Israel. She killed the prophets of the God of Israel. She ruled over King Ahab easily. She was really the woman on the throne. She persecuted Israel. She ruled by fear and intimidation. She uh, seduced the nation into false worship, into sexual worship, into prostitution. And Baal worship even included offering your children up for sacrifice. That's what King Ahab led the nation to do at her instruction. She was also involved in mass murder and in government confiscation of land and property. You see, Jesus is here warning that that spirit that lays behind many of those things was alive and well in the Roman culture at this time. It was in Thyatira, and I would say it still is today. I could give you modern equivalents from around the world of most of those sorts of things happening. And we don't have to look too far in our own culture to see many of them happening today. But that's not really his concern here. His concern is that the church has actually got some of that in it in Thyatira. It is, allowed, it is tolerating someone who's teaching these sorts of things in the church. And that is what Jesus Christ is shining a light on here. Remember, he loves his church. He has a godly jealousy for the purity of his church. And this is destructive and it will destroy his church. We would say, or Jesus would say, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. You ever heard that expression? You, everyone know, understands what that means. That comes from Jesus. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Often the church is called, we're called sheep, like pastor and sheep. And then you have a wolf that looks like a sheep, but actually underneath is a wolf, and the wolf likes to eat sheep. That's the picture that we have here. Claiming to serve God, yet preaching a false message, one that makes excuses for idolatry and everything that Jezebel was doing and that is common in the Roman world. False teachings, false doctrine. This was damaging and deadly to the church. Now you may ask, how do we fight this? How do we see this? How do we deal with this? Quite simply, I would say, understand the warfare, the spiritual warfare that's going on behind it. Put on the full armour of God. But most simply, get serious about the Bible. Get serious about discipleship. Because if you are, you will, the light of the Word of God will expose these things quite quickly. Let me read you a quote from a book called Jesus is Victor by Tozer. And it, it's a challenging quote, and I, I'd ask you all just to think about it. It says, the question is this. What are we allowing the word of God to say to us? And what is our reaction to that word? Have we consumed and digested this book? Have we absorbed the word of God into our lives? Or are we among those content to be part of a Christian congregation where there are no extreme demands, where fellowship will be consistently pleasant and without any responsibility? When we as Christians love our Lord Jesus Christ with heart and soul and mind, the word of God is on our side. If we could only grasp the fact that God's word is more than a book, it is the revelation of divine truth from the person of God himself. It has come as a divine communication in the sacred scriptures. It has come to us in the guidance and conviction imparted by the spirit of God within our beings. It has been modeled for us in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word and the eternal son of God. Quite simply, get serious about the word of God and it will explain this world to you, and it will keep these things from being a temptation or coming into your church or life. Verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, you may have encountered people like this, or similar to this, the same sort of attitude that you see today. The very mention of the name Jesus causes a seething, sometimes violent, but sometimes just a visceral reaction of hatred. Have you had that? You've been witnessing or you've been talking about God. People love talking about God and spirituality and vague sort of 
quasi-religious concepts, but as soon as you mention the name Jesus, quite often you get a different reaction. And that is because, as, Je as God said, sometimes men love darkness rather than light. Jesus promised that. They, it says they hated him, and quite often they will hate you. We dealt with that when we spoke about the persecution of the church. That is the tragic fact. Men sometimes do not want to repent. It doesn't say they can't. It doesn't say that Jesus won't forgive them. He died for them, still remember. It says they do not want to. And that is the tragic fact of much of our situation. Some people just do not want to. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. He goes on in verse 23, And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So we have a reference here to a bed of sickness. It's a very interesting word and, and the author is making a word play here. It's the same word that is used for a couch of festivity, a banqueting couch in the Roman world. He's probably making reference to the guild suppers that often happened at these things and where all sorts of immorality would have happened in these banqueting couch. What he's basically saying is that that place where you're doing these things is going to be turned into a bed of sickness for you. It will be the undoing of you. Those who, you have these groups of people, those who commit adultery with her. Remember, adultery, hopefully I've explained the bride and imagery. That's being used spiritually here to speak about teachings from Jezebel that are leading the church astray. That's what it's referring to primarily here. So you have that, and then it says her children too, and that would generally be her converts, you could say. Most likely false disciples. If you can imagine if you have someone like that in an organisation, and they have their own agenda, their own teaching, and people are then following them, you end up with this little thing. It's very strong language, I understand that, because it's a very serious issue. Let me basically give you a modern example to try and describe to you what is actually being expressed here and what the issue is. If you have a healthy body, okay, think of a healthy human body, let's say that, everything's running as it should be, and then you introduce a foreign body, or let's say a mutated cell, let's say a cancerous cell appears in that body, in a very simplified way of explaining this, that cell is doing something it not, it's not working right and it starts reproducing uncontrollably to the point that it will start to attack and damage the healthy tissue and healthy cells around it. That is pretty much the same imagery that we have going on here in a larger sense with the church. We know the church is often described as a body. Christ loves the church. He wants the church to be healthy and pure and holy. And here he has identified a rogue cell that is operating within this church. There was a treatment. He basically says the church leaders in Thyatira, they should have taken action and they should have removed it. You remember when he was writing to Ephesus, he says, you're really good at this. You recognize these false apostles and you put them out of the church. But in Thyatira, they weren't doing that. They were tolerating it, allowing it to happen for whatever reasons we could speculate, but they were allowing it to happen. That was the treatment. They should have removed it, but they were not doing that. So what we've just read here in those strong verses is basically Jesus saying, now it has gone too far, there is no other option. You didn't remove it, I'm going to have to come and remove it. I'm going to remove it totally from the presence of the church. It's the only way to save the body, if you think about it, or else it will just keep growing and it will damage and eat the real church. That is what he's basically referring to here. And when you think of it like that, it's quite an understandable picture when you think, this is Christ who loves his bride, and he's identified almost this, if we could say, cancerous element within it. They didn't want to get treatment for it. 
he needs to remove it. That is basically what we have being expressed here. Look at verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. He knows not everyone in this church, like we said, there are many faithful people in this church who are not going along with this, and to them, he says, I place no other burden on you. You're dealing with a tough situation, it's very hard, he doesn't have anything else to say to them, except, verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And this is, again, this is a beautiful expression that draws primarily on two Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 to 20, let me read it to you. Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing or curse. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. So they were commanded to hold fast to the Lord himself. Proverbs 4.4 Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. So there were two things that they were told to hold fast to. One was the Lord himself, the second was his word. Now, this is the same for us, this is the same to the church at Thyatira. They're being told to hold fast. What do they hold? They hold on to Jesus and they hold on to his word. If you really want to know the key to the Christian life, put in one of the most simplest terms, it is those two things. Hold fast to Jesus and hold fast to his word. Now we can ask ourselves, do we really hold fast to these things? Do we really cling to Jesus in that way? Do we cling to his word and rely on it in that way? Or do we sometimes maybe just go there when we're in need of help? And absolutely we should go there when we're in need of help. But the key to the Christian life is realising that we need to hold fast those things all the time. Times of joy, times of grief and times of blessing, times of poverty, whatever you may be in your life, you need to hold fast to the word of God. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 119. We studied this a few weeks back. I have chosen the faithful way. I placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law. Keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now, only a true believer is going to delight in following the word of God. This is what Jesus is exhorting the church, the faithful members of the church, to do. And he says, do this until I come. Now, remember the image I gave you at the beginning. We are the bride waiting for the bridegroom. We're in that period of waiting. But one day, that period will be over. There is an end in sight for history. And it says in the last days, there will be scoffers who doubt that. Of course, if you have a biblical worldview, you can go through history and you can see God's hands all through it. You can see that many things in this world has happened exactly as he said it would. We have no reason to doubt that his history is true. In fact, we could prove from quite strong arguments that what he says comes to pass. That's his promise. That's been proven from history many, many times. And he says, I will come again. We are to hold fast. We are to be about his business until the king returns until the bridegroom returns. Verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Notice, 
In all the other letters, he says to him who overcomes, and that's the simple promise, speaking to believers. Here he says to him who overcomes and keeps my deeds. So he adds that little section onto it. This seems to imply a special reward for faithful service to the Lord. And then he quotes from Psalm 2 again that I read earlier. Those verses that you've got in your Bible that are in all capitals there, that means it's a quotation from an Old Testament text talking about ruling over the earth, having authority over the nations. So what he is basically saying here, and it's an amazing promise, is that when the king comes to take back his kingdom from those who have usurped it, and we have this period of peace, his bride will have authority with him. You will reign over the earth as kings and priests. That's basically what it says. It's an amazing promise. To be honest, we really don't have any understanding of what that's going to look like or how that's going to work. I don't, I don't really like to speculate on it. We can't comprehend it. I think it's so far above anything that we can really uh, comprehend. And I think it's so far above any other promise that anything the world can offer to anyone. It's great encouragement to hold fast. That's what he's encouraging the church here to do. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Do not let the teaching of Jezebel lead you astray either into immorality or spiritual adultery or into anything, any teaching or doctrine that would take you away from Jesus Christ. We hold fast to him and his word until the coming of Christ. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The final promise again is related to that future coming. Because this is a book that deals with this future coming, we'll see this theme so much. What is the bright and morning star? In Revelation 22, which is right at the end of this book, we are, we are told what it is. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is the bright and morning star. You see, those who see the morning star are encouraged by the fact that the night is almost over. The sun will shine, and when that sun shines, darkness flees. That's imagery we find in the Bible. The morning star comes before the day dawns, and the sun shines during the day. Jesus is both. He is the morning star. As the morning star, he is seen by a few. Who sees the morning star? In ancient times, when this was written, it was only those who were watching. The watchman on the walls would be looking for the morning star. This is why the church, his bride, is commanded to be waiting and watching. We are watching for the morning star. We are those ones who are ready. It's only seen by few. As the sun, the shining sun, the imagery here, and I go with the symbolism, all will see that. We'll, we'll deal with that in the book of Revelation. No one will be able to deny that he exists or that his judgments are true and righteous when the sun shines. But for the bride, his church, He wants you to look out for the morning star because he will take you to be with himself. We are called to be watching and waiting. When we are doing that, there's no time to entangle yourselves with the teachings of Jezebel or the doctrines of Balaam, as we saw in the last letter. The heart of the faithful believer should be full of wondrous expectancy that the king is coming. And that is a hope that purifies us. 1 John 3.3 We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that was Christ's desire for the church. Where do we find these wonderful promises? Where do we find this information about this coming king? In the word of God. That's what I said. Get serious about the word of God if you want to know how to deal with these things. Second Peter, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. He says you do well to pay attention 
to the word of God. Pay attention to it, hold fast to the word. It is the lamp in the night, in the dark place, until the morning star comes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.